Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Um, so we're going to be, just before Jacko comes up and has, gives a sermon, we are going to be reading through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not the whole thing, uh, just a couple verses. Um, so our first is going to be Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. And um, if you want a Bible or any books, um, help yourself at the back. Nick is gesturing to them now. Um, but yeah, help yourself. If you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take them. So the first, uh, first we're going to read from the Old Testament is Daniel 7, 13 through 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Our second reading coming from the New Testament is Mark 10, 32 through 45. So that's Mark 10, 32, 32 through 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what he was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with but to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indigenous with James and John. Jesus called them together and says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Um, If I have not met you before, I'm Simon. Uh, Many people around here call me Jacko, uh, lead elder, lead pastor, um, and uh, it's a joy to serve in that role and to serve you today by bringing you um, the Word of God. Can I encourage you to keep Mark chapter 10 open in front of you? as we sort of drill into that section, verse 32 to 45 today, in our series called The Servant King, uh, as we explore Mark 9 to 16. I'm excited um, by um, having Jesse Wilsmore lead our prayer ministry. I think it's going to be great. Um, Thankful for him stepping into that role. Um, Also, I want you to highlight um, Liam Tang, who's up right at the back, um, waving his hand. There he is. Everyone look at Liam. Hi, Liam. Um, Liam's uh, stepping into overseeing sort of our welcoming, our sort of integration kind of ministry. Um, so if you're new here today, um, 
he, amongst others, is one person to talk to um, in that. Um, and thankful for him. Uh, thankful for Samantha Finnamore, who's down the front here. Um, everyone look at her from behind. No, um, and uh, so Samantha, along with Ruth, is uh, sort of stepping into that role of co-leading, I guess, to some degree, our food ministry, which again starts today, I'm hungry. Um, and uh, normally in these sort of situations, as the gathering keeps going, the smell of what we're eating will increase. Um, so I'm going to pray that God would not, will, will help us not be distracted by that wonderful smell. Um, but uh, anyway... Um, also, just really quickly before we get into the Word, um, up on the back table is a whole bunch of resources that we've pulled together um, to help you at whatever stage of knowing Jesus you're kind of at. If you're someone who's exploring Christ, um, there's copies of the Bible, copies of Mark's Gospel, there's information about um, yeah, getting started with Jesus. Uh, there's books up there, resources to help you if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time as well. Um, and uh, little books like this, um, maybe you've just come to faith in Jesus or maybe your faith has been reignited and you want to know what I do now that I'm a Christian, well, here's a book for you. Um, what should I do now that I'm a Christian? How about that? Um, little book, it's tiny. I like short books, right? Short books are good books. Um, this is obviously not comprehensive, but will get you going in terms of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ What's going to be helpful as I set out on a journey with Jesus from now and for eternity? Um, that'd be really good. And up the back as well, we've just thrown a few extra different translations of the Bible and in different languages. So there's a couple of copies of the Bible in Mandarin. Uh, there's a Bible up there in Arabic. And there's also a New Testament in Pitanjara, um, our, our local indigenous language. Um, and so, again, just want you to know that so that if people come to our gathering who... Perhaps English is not their first language. We can't have a copy of every single language's like, Bible, but and we've got a few there. Um, so they're just some resources as well. All those things are free up the back, by the way. Um, but can I encourage you as well, if you do take it and benefit from it, pass it on. Um, give it to someone else uh, to read as well. Um, there you go. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all the good things you give us. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to gather here today um, in this outpost of heaven, this little glimpse of the kingdom we have here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. We thank you that, Father, as we gather, um, your presence is with us really, really strongly, and we pray now that as we do gather in your name, uh, that you would speak to us as your people. Uh, Father, address us where we're at, uh, change us as we need to be, comfort us where we need comforting, and challenge us where we need challenging. Um, and ultimately, we pray that as we do gather now around your word in the power of the Spirit, You'd make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I um, dragged myself out of bed on Monday. Um, if you were here last week, I wasn't. Um, uh, I was crook, and so again, thanks to Tran for stepping into the breach to bring the word. Um, but uh, I dragged myself out of bed on Monday and started to prepare uh, the sermon, the Bible talk for this week. I pulled out some notes that I had from a few weeks ago as I started looking at it. I had to sort of pull it all together. Um, and uh, I sat down and stupidly, I decided to open Facebook um, and Twitter and Instagram and the internet. Um, what was I thinking? And I saw a whole bunch of articles and opinion pieces kind of in front of me. Uh, the articles followed what have been um, terrible and sobering revelations in the past uh, year and particularly in the past months about 
uh, church leaders who've been abusive and violent and deceitful, adulterous, and even to the point of rape of people. Um, it really rocked me um, when I read these articles. Uh, one of the comments I read on the back of some of these articles, one of this is, I quote, too many institutions work to protect the organisation instead of the people they're helping. Another quote, these institutions have been given the benefit of the doubt by society. How can such unspeakable crimes against humanity from the Christian crusades to the past of the past and to the atrocities of the present be given so high a degree of sanction by so many? And another one, to find out that a twisted biblical interpretation by some churchmen allows criminal activity to be tolerated is disturbing. The problem is that the New Testament was written in the first century Middle East. Families were hierarchical, so a wife was supposed to cop a hiding from her husband and not to argue and then to go on loving him. Today this seems stupid and arcane. One of the articles I read was written by a Christian woman who was herself abused by her lay preacher husband. I quote, My then husband was supposedly a Christian, a very pious one. He was a great amateur preacher, very encouraging to his friends and evangelistically inclined. He liked psychologically torturing me and dragging me by my hair around our apartment and punching me hard whilst telling me how pathetic I was. He gave me lists with highlighted sections of the Bible passages about how I should submit to him. I read these articles about these particular individuals. I read particular responses. These ones, some of them I shared. And after reading them, I was, I was genuinely kind of disoriented, actually. Um, after reading these powerful criticisms of Christian abuses of power, I was really disorientated, and, and I was trying to write a Bible talk, right, on words like this, whoever wants to become great amongst you must become their servant. So I was so disorientated, I couldn't really focus, so I decided to go for a walk. So I went off down Prospect Road, our church office is on Prospect Road, so I went down Prospect Road, found myself a cafe and a good cup of coffee, and I sat down thinking, you know, I'll get back to my talk and, and then I'll be fine. So I sat down, and as I sat down, for the next 30 minutes, the woman sitting next to me at the cafe berated her little, I don't know, three to four-year-old daughter relentlessly. It was, it was in another language. I, I couldn't work out exactly what she was saying, but it was awful, like just berating, berating, berating. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should intervene, if I should say something. But the child sat there kind of frozen, and silent and just had tears streaming down her face. And her mother just went on and on and on. And I walked home, or I walked back to the office, praying that little girl into God's care. The abuse of power, right, comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes, Christian or otherwise. The way a husband treats a wife, the way a mother talks to her children or a father talks to his children, 
the way a pastor seeks to control a church, the way a politician runs his or her staff team, and many other forms. But I just want to stress this morning how contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ this is. And so I find myself coming back to something that I know I said a couple of weeks ago, what you think is your biblical foundation will shape your Christianity. If the Gospels are not the foundation of your faith, your Christianity will end up in a pretty odd-looking shape, right? So, for example, I said this a couple of weeks ago, if if the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, is your foundation for the Christian faith, the lens through which you read all of the Bible, then you're going to end up with an apocalyptic, eschatologically shaped faith. And if you have no idea what that means, talk to me later. But it basically means, and there are Christians like that, and it gets pretty scary, I can tell you about it. Or if you make the book of Deuteronomy, one of the first books of the Bible, the the foundation of your Christian faith, Moses' long sermons and all all the laws of him as well, the divine law and conformity to that law will shape your faith. If you make Paul's letter to the Romans the foundation document of the Christian faith for you, then the doctrines of sin and grace are going to shape absolutely everything for you. But if like the majority of Christians over the past 2,000 years, and you say that the Gospels are the great foundation of the Christian faith, then the shape of your Christianity will be what? It will be a cross. The person and work of the crucified Lord Jesus will be the lens through which you see everything. And here, right, in the middle section of Mark's Gospel, We find Jesus on this relentless critique of power, especially religious power, with this repeated insistence that the person and work of the crucified Messiah turns all notions of power and greatness upside down. I don't know if you're how closely you've read Mark's gospel before, but there's this brilliant pattern that emerges in this sort of middle section of Mark's gospel. Um, It emerged kind of in chapter 8 and then in chapter 9, and again we see it before. I don't know if you've spotted it before. It's such such an important feature in the middle section of the gospel that I just want to spell it out for you again. Maybe you've never seen this before. Maybe you're going, do we have to go through this again? Here we go. Anyway, the pattern is threefold, and it's really clear. Here it is. Lovely diagram. Um, What we see, right, the pattern is this. Jesus speaks and he says, I've come to serve and I've come to suffer. And then the disciples kind of pipe up, those who are following Jesus closely, and they say, no, 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 maybe not. We've got hopes of glory and power and domination. And then Jesus thirdly says, all right, actually, as a disciple of me, if you're going to follow me, your life's going to be characterized by service and suffering as well. That's the threefold pattern, right? So if you look at the end of chapter 8 of Mark's Gospel, verses 27 through to 34, um, there Jesus for the first time says to the disciples, you know, this is what I'm going to be doing. I'm on my way to Jerusalem where I'm going to be handed over to the teachers of the law and the priests and the, all the religious, powerfully people, and I'm going to, they're, going to, they're going to 
beat me, they're going to mock me, and they're ultimately going to crucify me. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise on the third day. You know, and that's what Jesus says, first time. And then Peter, our beautiful friend Peter, pipes up and says, no, 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 no. That's not what the Messiah does. The Messiah conquers and dominates. And that's when Jesus calls a crowd to himself and says, words like, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross. That's what it's going to look like. Do you see the pattern? One, two, and three. If you turn the page in your Bible to chapter 9, verses 30 to 37, it's there once again. For the second time in Mark's Gospel, Jesus says, verse 31, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to the, the religious heavyweights. They're going to mock me. They're going to have me go through a phony trial. They're going to put me on a cross. I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. And then the disciples, verse 34 of chapter 9, say, we are still having an argument, don't they? This childish argument. Who's the greatest? Like, who's the greatest among us? Jesus just said, I'm going to die. And they're like, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest among us? And then Jesus, verse 36 of chapter 9, grabs a child in his arms, a toddler, and says to the disciples, this child represents me and my father better than you lot do. See the pattern? Chapter you know, 1, 2, 3. If you turn to our passage today, chapter 10, verse 32 to 45, I hope it's in front of you, you'll see the same pattern. For the third time, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, and to rise. Immediately, James and John ask for royal seats of power on the left and the right of Jesus. And so Jesus has to respond by offering that famous speech that he hasn't come to be served, but come to serve. The pattern is threefold, because the point is central to the Christian faith. And here's the point. Are you ready for it? Here's my point. The cross of Jesus Christ saves and shapes all who would follow him. The cross of Jesus Christ saves and shapes all who truly follow him. We're just going to walk through the passage, okay, from verse 32 to 45. Have a look at verse 32. Um, it's a pretty interesting introduction to a passage about humble service. Have a look. Um, they were on their way up to Jerusalem uh, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. It's pretty interesting. Um, Jesus was no peace-loving kind of hippie guy, right, who you would just kind of do the peace sign to a lord or slap on his back and just sort of chill out in Byron Bay with, right? No, he was, if you were part of the entourage of Jesus, right, if you were sort of traveling in a distance, following Jesus along, listening to what Jesus had to say at a distance, you were frightened of him. It's interesting, isn't it? Those who were sort of traveling in a distance were afraid. That's what the text says. But if you got to know him better, like the 12 did, we're told, they weren't afraid, they were astonished. See, Jesus wasn't really anyone's mate. If your picture of Jesus doesn't include being a little bit frightened of him, it's probably that you've got not the right picture of who he is. But that makes what comes next all the more striking. Have a look at verse 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man, it's a title we'll, I'll explain to you in a minute, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death 
and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, I ask you a question. Could Jesus have been any clearer about what he was about to do? I don't think so. And yet the disciples are still not kind of tuned in. Um, Take out the really unhelpful, if it's in your Bible, the really unhelpful NIV heading just before verse 35. I don't think it really should be there. So just kind of don't scribble it out. You don't have to. I'm not telling you. You must remove that altogether. Um, But have a look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, frankly, that is a dumb stupid thing to say to Jesus on any account. But look at what they ask. And when Jesus in verse 36, sorry, what do you want me to do for you? You know, what do you want me to do to you? I mean, what sort of tone do you think was in Jesus' voice when he said that? You know, we read the text as if it just all comes like, what do you, what do you think his tone was? What do you want me to do for you? I think he's like, oh, here we go again. You know, this will make a great threefold pattern when Mark writes it up later, I think that's what he's thinking. Here's their question, verse 37. Let one of us, Jesus, sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. What on earth is in their heads? I'll tell you what's in their head. Their cultural expectation and ambition that the Messiah conquers, not suffer. That he dominates, he doesn't serve. That was so much their culture. Our Caesar will beat that Caesar. That was kind of their whole thing. That that was it. They can't hear Jesus because they're so shaped by their culture. They can't hear him. And you've got to wonder, right, in our culture and society today, what bits of our culture has so shaped us that we no longer hear the truth? So Jesus asked them if they're willing to suffer, verse 38. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? In the ancient world, um, many cups were poisoned and lots of people died. And so the cup became a symbol of suffering. And and baptism simply means to to dip in water. Um, It was related to drowning Um, So you'd be submerged in suffering. Jesus is painting a picture of suffering. Can you bear this, Jesus asked them. And they, like with all kinds of pride, basically go, yeah, for sure, no worries. Verse 39, we can, they answered. They're most certainly thinking, the disciples at this point, of, you know, enduring battle and having great scars of victory after the war of the Messiah. You know, we endured it, Lord, because we knew the end. It was going to be glory, you know, and because Jesus, but Jesus is not talking about battle scars from a great war with Rome. He's talking about the privation, the mockery, and the beatings and ultimately executions that these followers of Jesus, who he is talking to, will face if they deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. And you see those words at the end, verse 39, um, you will indeed. 
they have a, it's an ominous tone in Jesus' voice, especially for the sons of Zebedee, right? Because James, the son of Zebedee, was the first apostle to be martyred in 44 AD at the hands of Herod Agrippa I. It's ominous. Verse 41, in my opinion, is almost comedic. You have a look at it. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, you've got to realise, right, they're not indignant at this point because they're disappointed at their lack of Christian humility. Oh, yeah, we get it. Sorry, you know, we're indignant. They're actually indignant, right, because James and John got their request in first. That's why they're indignant. They wanted seats of power, royal power at the left and right of Jesus. You can imagine, can you imagine Peter at that point? I reckon Peter's the most indignant, right? I mean, I mean, he's gone, whoa, whoa, I deserve one of those seats, Jesus, because I was the first one to identify you as the Messiah. Remember chapter 8? You know, and then guess, you know, Jesus said, upon you, Peter, I will build my church, the rock. You can imagine Peter going, if anyone's going to get one of those seats, it's me. They're indignant with one another. They all want the glory. They all want to conquer. They all want domination, power. And it's in this moment It's this situation that prompts perhaps some of the most spectacularly beautiful words of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, in all of the Gospels. Have a look with me, verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among, us, among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this powerful little paragraph, we have a, a theological statement and an ethical statement which I think together brings us very close to the heartbeat of Christianity. Let me explain the theology first. Um, Have a look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this one sentence, verse 45, chapter 10, which for many people is like the, the theme verse of the entire gospel of Mark, in this one sentence we have both the status of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. The status of Jesus is in that title, Son of Man. And notice how he says, even like the Son of Man. I love those little words. I'd even underline that in your Bible if you've got an old-fashioned pen on you and an old-fashioned Bible. Um, even the Son of Man. Because the title Son of Man is one of extraordinary authority and glory. Where does the Son of Man title come from? The disciples knew that the Son of Man came from nowhere else but Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, that's why I had Ruth read it out for us before. Daniel chapter 7, um, verses 13 to 14. Written centuries before Jesus arrived on planet Earth, 
If you have it open in front of you, have a look, listen to this. Daniel 7 records this. Verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man is, is a pretty bizarre character in the Old Testament. This passage alone creates kind of all kinds of speculations about who would be the Son of Man. Would he be one who God would invite into his very presence and more than that, share with him all the authority and power and sovereignty that all the wicked nations of the world would ultimately come and bow down and worship him? It's a loaded title. The Son of Man is like no other character in the Bible. He participates in the presence and the glory of God. It's, it's amazing. And at one level, right, you can see why the disciples might see this as domination because you know, the nations in all their rebellion and sinfulness are going to bow down to the Son of Man. Yeah, take that, you know, suckers, we're going to just smash you. But of course, you read a passage like that and there are two ways to interpret it, right? Daniel 7. Could mean that the, the Son of Man would be worshipped by all the nations of the world. You know, and it could be, right, that the Son of Man will be worshipped by all the nations of the world through subjugation, will smash them and just cause them to, you know, just love, just, you know, to serve and, and worship Him. But it also could be that the Son of Man will somehow find a way to atone for the sins of the nations, enabling them to be true worshippers. And that's what the mission of Jesus is all about. He hasn't come to smash and to conquer and to subjugate. His mission is to come and serve. So when Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he means many nations at that point. Um, ransom is the Greek word lutron, um, and it comes from the verb luo, can you say luo with me? Luo. You've, you've started Moore College. You've started theological education at that point. Um, when I was at Moore College, at Bible College, the first Greek word any Moore College student learns in Sydney is the word luo, um, ransom. Why do we learn that? Because it's the only Greek verb that behaves normally. Every other verb just goes bonkers after that. Um, anyway, enough of that. It means, you know, so luo means... Ransom. A lutron is just, well, sorry, lutron is, is ransom. Luo means loose or release. So a lutron is just the price of a luo. It's the price of freedom, of being released. And Jesus says, my life is a lutron, a ransom, the price for release from judgment for forgiveness. It's a powerful metaphor for the price paid for our freedom from judgment, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. That's the theology. But the main point of this text is the ethics, right, that flow from this theology. 
Verse 42, have a look at verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. There could be hardly more an obvious statement that Jesus could make in his day. The Caesars ruled, right? The Caesars ruled. The governors ruled. And they lorded over everyone. They lorded over them politically and economically and physically, financially, legally, culturally, socially. And verse 43, then Jesus says, not so with you. He says, I know that your culture has brought you up to think that Israel's Caesar, Israel's ruler, will be better than Rome's Caesar, that he'll crush them. But Jesus says, I'm here to say, not so with you. Instead, Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. See, the great in God's eyes the first in God's eyes are those who serve and suffer in the way of the cross. I'm not making this up, right? It's right here. In God's eyes, the first are the servants. James and John wanted first position. Left and right, please, Lord, that'd be great. Jesus says, no, 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 those spots, they go to the servants those people who were shaped by the cross. I experienced a picture of, I think, what this looks like a couple of years ago um, at an awards ceremony. Um, I went to a ceremony um, which was a ceremony where the mayor of Norwood, Paynham St. Peter's, I think that's how it goes, Norwood, Paynham St. Peter's, where the mayor kind of presents the Citizen of the Year Award on a particular day, you know, for outstanding service to the community. Um, the recipient of this award, Citizen of the Year, a couple of years ago, was a really good friend of mine named Ian Rohde. Um, he was a tireless servant of, our, of, the, of the local community, a tireless servant of the church that I was part of. Um, and I sat there, right, in the crowd when Ian's name was called, thinking, I think this is what it's going to be like in the kingdom. Like, you know, when, I think this is what it's going to be like. You know, who's going to be called up to the front? I think it's going to be the Ians of the world who will get called up to the front when we get to the kingdom. It was a beautiful little picture of God's honouring of the servants. You know, I can imagine on that day, right, when Jesus returns and we go into his kingdom in the fullness of the kingdom, I think we're going to, a picture on this day, you know, the Lord, you know, he's here and he spots me up the back and he says, oh yeah, that's Simon over there, yeah, 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 he was that. He was that lead pastor of City Light Church North Adelaide for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, he was also, he served as a police chaplain. That's right. And, and uh, I led some Bible studies and got to go and teach the Bible overseas. Oh, well done, Simon. Well done. But Ian, Ian, where's Ian? You know, I want to say, where's Ian gone? Oh, Ian, come on down. And everyone's, woohoo. And I'm like, what? You know, like Ian's coming on down, everyone's like, yes, that's right. And I'm sort of a bit indignant up the back. And, and then, you know, Jesus turns around and says, John, James, get off those seats, you know. I told you in Mark chapter 10, they're not yours, you know. Ian, come on down. And everyone who will be honoured on that day, that great day, will probably say exactly what Ian said when he received the award. Why am I getting this award for doing something that I just loved? 
Why am I saying that? Because service is at the heart of the gospel. And therefore, abuse, abuse of power is the antithesis of the gospel. Service is at the heart of the gospel. Abuse of power is the antithesis, the opposite of the gospel. And so if you're tempted to tread all over others in order to get where you want to go in life, you'll be the last in God's eyes. If you demean other people with your words and ways and hands and your body, you'll be the last in God's eyes. If churches protect their patch, protect their leaders, demand their privileged status in society, we are last. But if we use the power and the resources that God has given us for the good of others, we're first. If we seek to to build others up with our words and our ways and our hands and our bodies, we are first. And if the church, if the church forgets her status and just simply focuses on serving, we're first. See, the cross of Jesus Christ saves and shapes all who truly follow him, individually, collectively. And through Mark chapter 10, God calls on every one of us to be more like Jesus and a little less like James and John. More cross than throne. For even the Son of Man, to whom all nations owe their homage and praise and worship, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning um, we, we praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a release for many. Father, we pray, um, Lord, that those of us here this morning who, who know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, Father, that we would be um, a fresh renewed in our commitment to to live for Jesus and to love like Jesus. Father, we we realise that actually because of who we are and where you've placed us in this world, we are men and women who are powerful. Father, we're men and women who have plenty of resources. And so we pray, Father, against the temptation to use the power we have and the resources that you've given us for our own good. We pray you'd help us to be like Jesus who was so generous with everything he had 
and was so good to others. Help us, Father, to use our words and our ways and our hands and our bodies to build others up. And Father, make us here at City Light Church North Adelaide a church that is desperate to serve, above all desirous to serve and to point people to Jesus. Protect us from grasping at power. Protect us from abusing one another. Father, help us to look to the cross, look to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.